Every one of us know the sweet thrill when your blood, sweat, and tears in the jaws of intense competition yield victory. But tragically, the majority of humans on planet Earth have applied this payment for services rendered to their eternal destiny, and they are proud of it. Turn with our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtzen, to Romans 3.27, and let's discover what the Apostle Paul has to say about boasting before God. Last weekend on Friday and Saturday was the second annual NBC golf tournament. If you've gotten to know me at all, you probably realize that if it comes to throwing a football or shooting a basketball or fielding grounders, I've, I've done that over and over and over again. And I'm getting old and crotchety, but I can still throw a football pretty good. But when it comes to these things right here, my dad was an evangelist, and you can never slow him down long enough. Now, his friend, Billy Graham, and I'm not evangelistically speaking, uh, my dad really did know Billy. Billy's really good with these things. My dad was horrible with these things. And so, like, a lot of you dads mentor your sons in hunting like Peter Zip, and a lot of you uh, mentor your kids in basketball. My dad never mentored me in this. So... I actually went to the golf tournament, but I got to confess to you, I had to go and get these out of my garage. I got these from Keith Herney. He actually made these, and I had to just about take them to the car wash to get the dust off them, okay? I arrived at 7.30 on the Plexi River, had breakfast with the men. At 8.30, we, really about 8.40, we teed off, and Lane Merchimer, who's really got into the golf, was gracious to me. Uh, he put me on Eddie Irving's team and Dave Hurst's team. Now, they're really strong golfers. And I realized as we teed off, I, mean, I didn't even know that we were going to have a reward stand at the end. I, I didn't even know that, to be honest with you. And so um, as we teed off, I, they, they began to tell me that we had so many mulligans and that we were going to have, you know, the best team. And, it, and it, was a, it was the kind of a deal, you know, where you get to do the best shot. And so, you know, I figured, you know, I might be able to hang in there with that. But to be honest with you, I was thinking, like, you know, there's no way that we would win. And so, you know, I figured I'm going to, you know, we'll just play through the 18 holes. And at the end of the 18 holes, I'd had a great time. It was great to get to know some of the other men that were there and to spend time with Dave and Eddie. Lane and the sponsors of NBC's second annual would be the third annual next year. They gave out tremendous prizes. I mean, it was night out at Macaroni Grill, all kinds of stuff like that. But they came down, you know how those reward stands, you know, you're sitting there and the judge is handing out, Lane was the judge, and he's handing out all these tremendous prizes. And uh, Jerry Brooks was on an opposing team, and, and I played one time with Jerry and Gerald, and Gerald, you can ask Gerald after the service, I am not lying, and I'm not evangelistically speaking about how terrible I am at golf. So Jerry was on another team, and he's really high-powered. Keith used to spend hours and hours and hours playing golf at the end, you know, there's no way that we can win. But when they took out the, the scoring cards and they added everything up, the team, I want you all to know, and Zach said you're going to rub it in, because this is the only time in all my life I'll be able to rub it in, the team of Irving, Hurst, and Wurtson won the NBC golf tournament. And, and this is the thing, I went home and spread my big peacock win, uh, you know, tail, and I threw $50 on Mary's computer. I said, honey, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. 
I actually earned for playing golf. And, and no kidding, Jerry thinks we cheated. We did not cheat. It was just a miracle that I, and we had to use everybody's, you know, shots and everything. And just by total miracle, I had drives when I needed drives. I had middle game when I needed middle game. And for some nutty reason, all my years of putt playing putt-putt, I have done that. And I was nailing about six eight-foot putts because Eddie is such a lousy player, he can only get us within eight feet of the pin from the middle game. So, so I actually won it fair and square. And I want you to know, can't you feel the pride? Now, Mary's not really impressed with that, but I want you to know that I am, bust, I am boasting this morning because this is the only time I own life. That, and, and all of you know, how many of you have ever gone through the blood, sweat, and tears of athletic competition? And I've done this over and over again, not much in golf, but a ton in football, a ton like our church when we first started to have literally the best softball team imaginable. We beat everybody around the area, and we boasted about it. How many of you have ever boasted about Pat Riggins used to play on that team and some other guys that are here that, that we can't even walk anymore, but we used to do that? But how many of you have ever gone through the blood, sweat, and tears of actually winning in an athletic contest, and you are proud, that real sweet victory, feel of it. Anybody ever experienced that? Okay. So I want you to think about that, because the tragedy is that a lot of us have applied that when it comes to religion. In fact, most of the world approaches getting right with God exactly the way I approach that golf tournament. You got to hit the strokes, you got to make the shots, you got to get the ball in the hole, and when you're all done, if you're able to compete, everything's going to be all right. For example, I can illustrate it two ways. When I go to Israel, and late at night, I'm going back and forth with David Kadron, one of our Israeli guides. David is proud of the fact that he is one of Abraham's sons. I want you to know that. David believes that he's one of Abraham's sons, and he's proud of the fact that he is a son of Abraham, circumcised in the eighth day. He's proud of the fact, and he doesn't even believe in God that much, really, but he really believes in being a Jewish Israeli. And so I ate a Sabbath meal with him. All of his little kids and all of their extended relatives could sing just four. I heard them sing that night, and Mary did four or five psalms in Hebrew as we ate the meal. They could tell us all the story of the Exodus and all of those things, and David was proud of it. But you know, my son Jonathan has not only been in Israel with a bunch of Israeli buddies, but now he's also been a lot in the Islamic world. And for example, like for two years in Morocco, and when I went to visit Jonathan, I was with not Jews, but I was with Moroccans that are Islamic. And guess what? They think that who's their daddy? They think Abraham's their daddy. You know what? They are proud of it. And they actually kill each other because I believe Abraham's my father and the Jews think Abraham's their father. Now, that'll, that tension and what it is, it's pride. The Jewish person says, I have all this heritage. I have all these ceremonies. I have this incredible law. And, and it goes right back to Abraham. I am following in the footsteps of Abraham. I am obeying God. And I'm following the ceremonies that Abraham followed. And I'm different from every, anyone else. 600 years after the time of Jesus, Muhammad came and he took a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the New Testament, mixed it around, came up with the Quran. 
He didn't write it himself, but those that followed after him wrote down his oral teaching. It's a mixture of the Old and New Testament, kind of synthesized together with Muhammad's slot. But it basically comes out with a message. Father Abraham had many sons, but the Jews aren't really the sons of Abraham. We are. And a great divide in the world is present. You say, well, they haven't had anything to do with this. Oh, yes, it does. How many of you have ever met somebody that said, I, I'm a Presbyterian? Mary and I are with a couple that we love dearly, and an old Bible church has started going to a Presbyterian church. Forgive him for that. No, I'm only kidding. But he said to me three times during the meal, they're proud to be Presbyterian. How many of you have ever met a Baptist that's proud to be a Baptist? You ever met a Methodist that's proud to be a Methodist? Well, don't you shake your head too hard. How many of you are proud? How many of you have ever been in a fight? Well, I go to the Bible church, and you're proud about it. And what I want you to start to see is is that's what the Apostle Paul was, was, was dealing with in the first century. There was a great big divide in that the Jewish people said, we have God's law, the Old Testament. We are sons of Abraham. We have been circumcised like Abraham was. And then we kept the laws of Moses. And Abraham was our father. And they had turned getting right with God into that golf tournament. And they felt there was going to be a reward stand at the end, and they would win because they were better than anyone else. Turn to Romans chapter 3 because the Apostle Paul is going to raise the question, where is the boasting? What I want you all to ask yourself is, do you have a right this morning to be arrogant and prideful and boasting about your standing with God? And if you're into getting to heaven by winning the tournament of moral righteousness, then you're going to be proud of it. In fact, the person that won't hear me this morning is the person that doesn't face the truth about what's really going on inside of you. You think you're really good at this game called life. You think that you're really relatively a moral person. You think, compared to everyone else, you've got a really good chance at the end, and therefore you're blind because you won't open up to what's really going on in your life and you're really proud of yourself and you live in a culture that's constantly telling you, be proud of yourself and listen to Oprah because Oprah will teach you how to really find your inner saint. And I want you to understand that your culture is filled with that. Now look what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is the boasting, he says. Look at Romans 3, 27. Because what I teach this morning, it's not important what I say, it's what God says in Romans. The Apostle Paul says, where then is the boasting? How do you think he's going to answer that question? That's what we're going to find out. It is excluded. I want you to know that when it comes to standing right before God, none of us, no human being on planet Earth, has the right to boast. There can be no arrogance. There can be no pride. There can be no standing before the reward stand of God and saying, by my blood, sweat, and tears, I want you to know I earned my place here. Paul is saying, where's the boasting? It is excluded. Now, what excluded that? Was it because of the law? And Paul's running to an audience that has externalized God's law, and they feel that they're really keeping it. And a lot of the people reading this book are saying, I'm a good person. And I often talk to church people that say, I'm really a good person. Man, I'm keeping the laws of the Bible church. I'm keeping the laws. I've learned all my Awana verses. And I have fulfilled all the nursery duty. And I've done all, and those are all really great things to do. Or if I talk to a Jewish person, I'm keeping the kosher food laws and I'm worshiping with my family every Friday night. 
The Apostle Paul is saying that boasting is going to be excluded, but it's not going to be excluded on the basis as long as we think that the way that you get right with God is by making the strokes, by making the shots spiritually and religiously. He said, what excludes the pride? What excludes the boasting? Look what he says. No, but it's on the basis of faith. Faith excludes all of our boasting. And that's what we're going to explain. What does it mean that I get right with God based not upon my obedience to moral principles, even revealed moral principles, but based upon my just dependence upon Jesus and the gift of Jesus? That's the question I want you to think about this morning. How do you think you'll get right with God? What does it mean that you just trust in Jesus and you can be forgiven? Is that really how you get right with God? And that's what Paul's going to develop. Look what he says in the next verse. This is Paul's point. Now, you can disagree with me. This isn't what Dave Wurtzen says. So don't go to Sunday lunch today and say, well, I didn't agree with David. I want you to rest with what Paul is saying. Because your eternal life and your children's eternal life and your friends that you reach out to, their eternal destiny depends upon how you answer and how you respond to the questions Paul is raising. Look what he says. We maintain, Paul is saying that a man, a woman, and the word man there includes all of you ladies, that a human being, a man or woman, is declared right before God, is righteified. Remember, we're teaching on how do you get right before God? How do you end up at his reward stand and be recognized and accepted as a forgiven, accepted, righteous person, deserving the position as one of God's children? How do you get there? That Paul is saying, I maintain that a man or woman is declared to be right with God, is righteified by, what's the next word there? Tell me that really loud. Amen. It's by faith. And notice the next part, apart from observing the law. That goes against your, your innate, natural way of thinking how you get right with God. You all think, I gotta believe, but man, it's about observing the law. Some of you got saved by faith, but this morning you're very discouraged because you think that your Jesus is really displeased with you and he's rejecting you and you think of him being distant and now you are working hard to observe the law and you're not doing a very good job. And so you think, man, you think, well, Dave, to be honest with you, if I were to stand right before God now, I'm not sure what he would do because I don't think I measure up. And I want you to see the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is saying that you never leave the principle of faith that established the relationship that you have with Jesus. And we're going to learn how that relationship of faith with Jesus generates righteousness in your life as we go through the book. But I want you to think really strongly, how do I answer the question, why is boasting excluded? Why is nobody in this room better than anyone else when it comes to standing right before God? It's because it's always based totally upon just trusting in what Jesus did for you, depending upon what Jesus did for you. What, look what Paul's going to develop this. He says, he says, no, we maintain that a man's not declared right before God by, by observing the law, but it's only by faith. Look at verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? How do you think a Jew would would respond to that in the first century? Jeannie's shaking her head. Jeannie, you're exactly right. They really helped. In fact, I can read to you rabbinic teaching 
where a rabbi, now there are rabbis that are much more universal, and this, remember, even in Jesus' ministry, the scribe that came to him, and Jesus said, well, you're not far from the kingdom. So if you're from a Jewish background, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit was speaking within the rabbinic tradition. I want you to know that it's not, it's not like none of the Jews. In fact, our whole movement was founded and taught by Jewish people. So it's just an unhistorical reality to think that no Jews got what Paul is saying. The man that's writing this stuff to us is a Jewish rabbi. One of the most trained Jewish rabbis, you might say, of the first century. And so some of them got it. But there was also a large group that that opposed Paul throughout his whole ministry. They eventually accused him before the Roman government and have him killed. And they held that God was the God especially of Jews. Now, Paul, remember, he says they are special because they were chosen by God, but they were special to cause the whole world to receive the blessings of Abraham. And that's what they lost. And we need to be really careful that we don't feel, well, Jesus is for us as a nice Bible church, but he's not for bikers and they're riding their bike in their groups. It's not for atheists. It's not for the people that are homosexual, and on and on it goes. And we're not saying that those people don't need to turn away from their sin, but we need to be willing to say, no, God's their God too. And he wants to offer a gift to everyone we're meeting. And you all can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I really believe that. But whether or not you have an open heart toward other, the early church faced the Jews didn't want to let you in because most of you are Gentiles. They didn't want to let you in because you ate the wrong food and you worshiped in the wrong ways and you had a terrible past because you used to worship idols. And the Jewish people that Paul was trying to talk to in this book were really exclusive. Are we? Are we? It's pride that makes us exclusive. It's pride that makes us, and it's our boasting. And we, get a, we gather together with people that are like us. And Paul's making an incredible point. How many gods are there in the universe? Now, I want you to stop and think of it. Paul argues brilliantly. What's the heartbeat of Judaism? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, what that means, literally in Hebrew, akad is the word. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is a oneness. He's a community of unity, that there's one ultimate being called God. But a cod doesn't mean until the debate with Christianity in the first century. Before that, in the Old Testament, I can show you over and over again how one means a oneness. Mary and I are a oneness. We're two distinct personalities, but we are united as one. We're a community in our marriage. That makes sense? The Trinity is much more mysterious than that because it's an eternal oneness. But it does mean that the ultimate being in the universe, like if you're a Buddhist, I want you to know that there's not, according to what Scripture is teaching, you need to think hard about this, is one day you're not going to become part of a great force field. You're not. According to the Bible, you're going to face the oneness of the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Very specifically, Paul's taught us that if you're a Buddhist, one day you'll be at the reward stand and Lane Merchiver is not going to be handing out the prizes. Jesus is. Did everybody hear me? That's not what I believe based upon Dave Wurtzen's thought. And you can totally disagree with me, but I want you to know it ain't going to change it when you die. 
You can disagree with me all you want, and we're going to find out one day. When you're standing before a man with nail print in his hand, you can sit there and go, well, man, I thought everything was pluralistic. Jesus is going to say, hey, I was trying to talk to you in your heart from the time you were just born. I try to talk to you every day. Deep in your heart, if you wanted to respond to the truth, you wouldn't have believed all that stuff. You can look at your own personality and know that the ultimate thing in the universe isn't, isn't Star Wars force fields. It's a person, and I'm serious. And I'm, I'm going back to you the way Paul's arguing. Does that make sense? You see, you, we live in a culture that thinks we make up who God is. You think you make up God by your own beliefs. I got news for you. You don't make up who God is. He makes up who you are. And you better listen to him. One of the great things that the Old Testament taught us that, is that there is one God. That God isn't Dagon, the fish god, of, and the, the weird god of the Philistines. That he isn't Ashtart that was worshipped under groves of tree and, and was the god of war and also the god of sexuality. That he wasn't Hathor, the Egyptian god. One of the great things that the Jewish people in the Old Testament revealed to us, no, here is or the Lord our God is one. But now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is, this really one God is teaching us what's reality. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he is the God of Gentiles as well, since there's only one God who, and this is what he's going to do, he's going to justify or declare the circumcised. How are the circumcised going to get right with God? Paul tells us by faith. And the uncircumcised are going to get right with God by the same faith. You got it? So how did Jews and Gentiles get right before God? According to the one God, it's always by faith, dependence upon his promise. Do we then, now this is a really key point. Say, well, Dave, that just throws out all the Old Testament. Now stay with me. Paul usually taught not with a bunch of Bible church believers in Jesus. Paul would go into a Jewish synagogue. Like he would go into a city like Ephesus and there was a synagogue in the city of Ephesus and he would go in there as a rabbi and in Jewish circles they ask a man that comes into the first century synagogue to read some of the law, some of the Old Testament to us and then expound it for us. So Paul would stand up and read the law just the way Jesus did, read the synagogue reading and then he would sit down and he would teach them the way that you're reading in the book of Romans. Do you understand that? It'll really help you to get it. I was raised with Jewish kids. And so in class with a bunch of Jewish people, they don't sit there like you do. They talk to the teacher. Like in a Jewish dialogue, as I've been teaching, right now someone would say, words in what you just said, just nullify it, all the Old Testament. Because you said the way you get right with God is by faith in God's promise and not by observing the law. And man, the book of Leviticus gives us all the food laws that I'm working really hard to keep. Genesis 17, Father Abraham was circumcised. You're wrong, Paul. And I was raised back in New York with a lot of Jews. That's the way we carried on arguments. And so, and what Paul's going to do now is he's going to respond to that. And I want you to listen to me. This is real important. Paul claims that the Old Testament, and he uses law. You have to listen carefully the way he uses law. Paul was just as, doesn't what you're teaching nullify the Old Testament? Not just the Pentateuch, but, but you can use law in Jewish circles for their whole revealed scripture. And the Apostle Paul is going to take something out of the Pentateuch. 
And he's going to say, no, right in the Old Testament, at the very beginning of God's revelation to us, people got right with God exactly the way I'm teaching in the book of Romans. You ready to stay with me? Look what he says. Do I nullify the law? Paul begins in chapter 4 says, no. What then shall we say? Here's the key person. If the law is nullified by believing that a person gets right with God by faith, then when you go back in the book of Genesis and look at the father Abraham, how many of you have ever sung this song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Is the Old Testament teaching that the way that Abraham had many sons is they were circumcised and then they obeyed the laws of Moses? And if they obeyed those laws really well and kept all the kosher laws, that at the end of their lives, God would evaluate their life and they would be declared right if they had the obedience of Abraham. That's the way you think. If they played the golf game of life religiously and made the shots, they would be in. You got me? Paul's going to argue, no way. Right out of the Old Testament. He says, what shall we say then? That Abraham was declared right with God? How did he get that? It says, what did Abraham discover in this matter? Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. If, in fact, Abraham was justified or declared right before God by works, he had something to boast about. So Paul concedes the point. If Abraham got right with God because he was circumcised and obeyed the moral laws of God, then he could be proud. But notice he throws in and says, but that's not the answer because Abraham's not going to be able to boast before God. I want every one of you to know this morning, None of us will ever be able to boast before God based upon us. Did you hear what I just said? None of us are going to be able to be proud of the peacock and throw our $50 winnings on the throne of heaven and say, God, aren't you glad to have me here? I won the game of life. And that's what almost all of you intuitively think. Your friends think that. And I want you to know it is a lie. Islamic people believe that. Jewish people believe that. Liberal Protestants believe that. Uh, Roman Catholics that will follow the teaching of the church from the last Vatican. Although there's some major shifts now, and I'm blessing the priests that are really getting into the book of Romans. But I want you to know it doesn't make any difference whether I'm a Protestant or not, or a Roman Catholic, or Jewish. The dominant thing that religion teaches you is that good people earn their way in and then they can be proud about it. And they won't tell you that, but that's what Paul's arguing. And Paul's saying, no way. And he says, Father Abraham didn't get declared right before God because he was circumcised. How was he declared right before God? Look what it says. What does Scripture say? Paul says he's not going to be able to boast before God because Scripture teaches us in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. Now, when a man's works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, I did not receive the $50 we got, you know, that we were able to divide up the prize winning among us three. I didn't say, thank you, Lane, for the great gift that you gave me. No, I said, Mary, I earned this money. Leanne was telling me, Joshua's taught little James to go, show me your muscles, James. And James, my sprint thing, goes like that, shows his muscles. Little bitty guy. See, he's already flexing his muscles. That's what you all do spiritually. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. What did Abraham learn about this most important question? How do you get right with God? And Paul's going to tell us what he learned. No, he says, 
he learned that God credited it. It was not his wages, but it was credited to him as a gift. Look, look at verse 5. Whoever, to a man who does not work, listen to me, all of you that are, move, that are legalistic, which includes a lot of me. Paul's making an incredible statement. Abraham learned that it's not to the man or woman who works, but it's the person who trusts God. You got to get that burned in your soul. Abraham learned that it's because I trust God. And notice, this is going to burn you. If you're a legalist, you hate this. God declares righteous a wicked person. Did you hear what I just said? Here is someone. Abraham is a liar. He lies twice about Sarah. Abraham followed the customs of his day, but not the customs of Genesis chapter 2. He took Hagar as his concubine, and he's the one that generated all of this, the Arab side of the Semitic people. And that's in the Old Testament. Abraham, if you study carefully the text, Abraham's not a righteous man from a human standpoint. He is a wicked man. You got that? But you know what? Father Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6, two chapters before he was circumcised. And you know why he was declared righteous? Because God told him, Abraham, I told you in Genesis 12 that you're going to have many sons. And Abraham said, no, I ain't, because I don't have any sons. And Eliezer, my servant, is going to be the one that inherits all my stuff. Eliezer, my servant, because I don't have any sons. And the Lord says, I know you're getting up there in age. Move, press it towards 90. But you're going to have a son. And that son's going to come right from the dead womb of your wife, Sarah. And the Bible says, and then God took him outside and says, look at the stars of heaven. You see those stars? He says, Abraham, I want you to know, one day, your people are going to be like the stars of the heaven. And this is the miracle. In those days, in the early chapter of Genesis, God, in the second person of the Trinity, which I believe is Jesus, would take on a human form, just like he did when he talked over things with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're a philosopher, you don't think God can do that? Tough. I don't care whether your philosophy says God can do that. My God does what he does. And it just happens to be that the second person of the Trinity could take on a bodily form and could talk things over with Abraham, take him outside and say, you see those stars? Your children are going to be like that. And this is the miracle. It says, Abraham said, God, I believe you. Now, I want you to know you got a lot of ammunition. Has Abraham had many Jewish sons? Yeah. But I want you to know he has a lot more sons than just the Jewish sons. Because Paul tells us it's not just his physical son but it's his sons of faith that followed him when God made a promise. You're going to have the great deliverer come through you, and you're going to multiply, and it's going to be a miracle. Out of the deadness of Sarah's womb, there's going to be a miracle that happens, and you're going to produce the promised people, and eventually the promised one. Abraham said, I believe it, and he built his whole life. He never left that, and that's what Paul is saying. He says, and then he used David as an example. Look at verse 6. Says, David says the same thing. What happened in the synagogue discussion, one of the Jews said, what about King David? King David was declared right before God by being a circumcised good Jew. 
Because that's what the rabbi would teach him at the time. And I'm sure Paul laughed a little bit and said, are you kidding? Have you read the story, the real story of King David? He said, let me remind you. He said, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness. How many of you want one day to see me before God and God puts his arm on your shoulder and says, you're my blessed child? How many of you want that to happen? David knows for sure that that's going to happen. In Psalm 32, David said, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. What transgressions did David have? Have any of you in this room, now don't raise your hand, please. Talk to me afterwards. How many of you have ever fallen in love with a woman that didn't belong to you and then murdered one of your most devoted soldiers, then covered it all up? Anybody ever done that? How many of you have ever disobeyed God and arrogantly numbered all the people so you could boast about your great big population when God told you not to do it? And because of it, thousands of your people died because of your disobedience. Anybody ever done that? Even when those of us in our church family get down to Venus, Bill Curry over and over again is able to, the, the guys, after you get to know him, sometimes you don't ever ask him this, but sometimes they tell you, Bill has had guys say, well, man, I can't get in. I'll never have my transgressions forgiven. I'll never have my sins covered. I'll never have my sins not counted against me. And Bill has said over and over again, and you ever murdered somebody? Tell the story of David. And he takes him to Psalm 32 and says, David did all of those things. And God says, David, your sins are covered. David, your transgressions are forgiven. And God puts his hand on David's shoulder and says, you're my blessed child forever. And Paul asked the question, how did that happen? I want you to understand that could never happen because David earned his way. It's got to be by faith in the promise of God. And is this blessedness only for the circumcised, Paul closes, or also for the uncircumcised? We are saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was after. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness which he had been given by faith while he was uncircumcised. So then Abraham is the father, and I get this, Abraham is the father of all of us who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised. He's the father of the Jewish people physically who are not only circumcised, but they also have to walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham our father had. Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is Paul's incredible point. This is what he's saying is, how does a person stand right before God? And what did the Old Testament teach was how a person stood right with God? And this is the answer. God comes to you and says, you're a sinner. Romans 1.18 and all the way up to 3.20. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you say, I, I agree. And I want to turn around. I'm turning away from God. I want to turn towards him. God makes a promise to you. Now, Abraham, all the promise that Abraham was is Abraham, Genesis 3.15 promised you that I would send a great deliverer. You know that. And he would slay the serpent, and through you, all the nation of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham knew that out of his line would come a great male deliverer that would be the Messiah eventually. 
Didn't know his name would be Jesus. At this particular point in his life, he didn't know that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem like Micah did many hundreds of years later. He didn't know that. He didn't even know as much as David knew. He didn't know it was going to be a royal son. But Abraham knew the essence of what you know. He knew that out of the deadness of Sarah, God would make a miracle and a baby would be born that would produce the Messiah. And Abraham simply said, I believe it. Have you? This is the guts of what Abraham's saying, and Moses taught it as well, okay? Lane in Life and Focus told this story. He wanted to have Jigsaw, wanted to have a dog like Jigsaw. Jigsaw's a border collie. And Hugh Huber has this marvelous border collie. It obeys, it rides in his truck. And Lane, who's one of Hugh's friends, said, man, I'd love to have a dog like that for my boy. And he was coveting that in a holy way. They're just getting ready to have their fourth son. That's not a really great time to have a dog, right? But this is the hitcher. The boys had been acting really bad. How many of you moms have had boys that act bad? Now, one of the things that you need to get it really across to your kids is that when they act bad, you don't reward them with good things because that teaches them really bad lessons. But Lane was working on life and focus from Romans chapter 4. And he began to think, my boys are acting bad. But Jigsaw had a litter of puppies that are really great puppies. And Lane and Deborah had to make a choice. Should they just give their kids a gracious, free gift? And tell their little boys that you can believe mom and dad's promise, and we want to give you a dog, and this is a great time to have it. And even though you're not good boys, we're going to get Scout. That's grace. That's grace. Totally free, unmerited, a gift. So Lane and Deborah took their three boys, and they picked out of that litter, and you can go to their house today, and he's probably wetting all over the floor, <laughs> but they have a little puppy named Scout. And I want every one of you mom and dad to listen to me. Your kids are going to fall in love with Jesus because they learn that that's what Jesus does. That Jesus takes wicked little boys. And yes, the Lord wants them to come to the place of honesty. He wants them to come to the place like King David did where he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. But the wondrous story of grace is that you are a wicked, dirty, rotten, undeserving sinner. And the God of the universe, when you come before his reward stand, based upon the law, you're not going to ever make it. The reality of my golf game is I was proud of playing golf. But you know what? I would never, never make it on the pro tour. But I want to tell you something else. Eddie's really proud of his golf game. David, not nearly as much. But Eddie said on that match over and over again, I'm glad I'm a dentist because I'll never, never make it on the pro tour. And Eddie's really good. But Steve Jones, the friend of Mary and I, he won the U.S. Open. Steve moved to Montana. He's had to move back to Phoenix as he practices about six and seven hours every single day. He uses a new ball every shot. His coach analyzes the way that he swings to the minute detail. And Steve isn't doing that great 
because he's getting older, but he won the U.S. Open at one time. And if I go out and play with Steve, I'll never make it. But I want to share with you something. You know what Paul is saying in the book of Romans? Steve wouldn't make it either because in God's eternal golf tournament, you know what? When God plays the game of righteousness, it's a hole-in-one every time. God never lies. God never cheats. God never steals. God doesn't even have it in his nature to be lustful. God never takes a life illegitimately. He never murders. He is totally perfect. And so I throw my golf clubs away and I say, I'm lost. And this is what Paul said in the book of Romans. The greatest player that ever lived named Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And he lived totally a perfect life. He never missed a shot. And then he came to his father as the perfect, sinless, only person to fulfill the law and says, Daddy, it's time to fulfill our plan. And he looked at us, wicked, failing, missing shots one after another. He says, God, I'm going to pay the penalty for their missed morality. And then I'm going to rise again from the dead. And I'm going to pour myself into them. And I'm not just going to teach them how to live golf. I'm going to internalize the game of righteousness in their life. That's what the book of Romans is promising you. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.